Hey guys, welcome to VS Energy's Commissioning Podcast. I'm your host, Clayton Ferry, and here with us today is Mark Sankey and Nick Taliska. In today's podcast, we will be discussing the installation phase responsibilities of the commissioning agent. So as you guys know, in our last episode, we discussed the design phase, and now we're rolling into the installation phase with the commissioning agent. And to some, this may seem pretty obvious, but there's a lot of benefits to having the commissioning agent involved during construction, and we'll go through those today. I have a little list here. Uh, I'll go through them for you guys, and I'll let you guys elaborate on it once I'm done. But obviously, having the commissioning agent on site can help identify installation issues, um, mechanical or controls, that can be mitigated and solved before rework is required or we get too far down the road. The commissioning agent can help ensure the field devices match the submittals and specifications so we know what we're installing is correct and is per the design. And they also help keep the OPR up to date and ensure the project is adhering to the guidelines. So they're the ones overseeing kind of the whole bubble and making sure it's moving towards the end goal that everybody had agreed on, you know, in the pre-design, design, and now installation phase. Nick or Mark, do you guys want to add to that list? I do. Not just limited to mechanical or controls. The need for construction phase engagement of the commissioning agent or owner's rep of some kind should take place all the way through foundation, underground, structural, electrical, fire protection, plumbing, only because... It's extremely difficult to do rework. And once you get to the end phase of pre-functional checkout and functional test, it's pretty hard to say, oh, you really don't have enough pitch on your drain line that's underground. Things like that that are simple to fix when they're exposed, when they're available, not under six inches of concrete or through a foundation wall that are easy to overlook. Tradespeople are not necessarily the individuals that are responsible for the compliance with the specifications or the OPR. And oftentimes we see limited engagement of project management or supervision in terms of coordination with other trades and, and review of specifications and plans. But more typically, this is the way we've always done it and this is the way we put it in. And it may not match the OPR, it may not match the construction documents. And that is a common problem. I think Mark's right on with the identifying the installation issues. I mean, obviously, Clayton, like you said, making sure everything matches up with the submittals and what's been agreed upon, keeping the OPR up to date, very important. But when some installation issues are overlooked and then they cascade and then they're finally identified, even though it may seem like it's a, you know, an obvious problem that needs to be remedied. Sometimes people get too anchored into a certain path because they've gone down it far enough and the amount of rework can be very substantial and costly. So we had this discussion in some other episodes, but again, the commissioning agent is involved in more than just HVAC per se. They're involved in the entirety of the project. And to Mark's point and your point as well, Nick, is we need to focus on 
maybe some of the aspects that a lot of people you could say take for granted too that okay all all the groundwork's going to be completed so once we once we really start building the facility and putting the mechanical equipment in it's good but that's not always the case and rework obviously at that point is timely and expensive i'd add this clayton i don't want to come off as saying the commissioning authority is the only one that can see issues but a lot of a lot of times when he is focused or she is focused on a different set of responsibilities just sometimes asking the questions and ferreting out some of the issues can bring other people to identify well this is not going to actually meet the objectives or could cause some other problems down the road that we're not foreseeing well i'll go back to my earliest days in the industry I worked for a very large automation and controls company at the time. And there was, as, as I said in an earlier podcast, there would be an individual known as the clerk of the works. But what typically happened is everybody else gets done with the job, the electricians, the mechanical, everybody's off the job. And now we're waiting for the quote controls guys to finish. So the controls team would be on the job. Uh, you know, our team would be on the job and we're connecting to devices and we're trying to make things work. And we were the bad guys because many, many times we would be identifying issues that were installation or mechanical related or even electrical related. And we couldn't get the fan to start. The damper won't open. There's no power to the actuator. There's no, et cetera. So in many regards, the controls people had the responsibilities to make everything work, but we were forever, and it still happens to an extent, calling the other trades, hey, uh, the airflow station's in the wrong place. Hey, the um, dampers are twisted and won't move. So without commissioning engagement during construction, the, the last 5% of the project takes 15 or 20 percent of the time because things don't start upright things don't don't uh, operate correctly windows leak just just the things that could be avoided that aren't avoided because there's no quality process during the construction uh, of the of the project yeah and time and money means seems to mean a lot more at the end of the project than it does at the beginning especially the time aspect so mark's you know, examples, and I've seen plenty of those too, where you get to the first round of your controls commissioning and you find issues with things aren't working like you thought they were. Well, that can put a grinding halt to everything. Yeah, those are those are both good points. And speaking of time, let's roll into my next question then. And this is obviously very dependent on the magnitude of the project and the complexity of the project, but how much time should be spent on site during construction as a commissioning agent are we talking every day for eight hours a day or is it two days a week one day a week i mean and just give me some maybe general stuff or what makes that change well the the biggest correlation to the amount of time is the size of the project right how many square feet do you have to cover you know if if it's a half a million square foot project that may be one person full-time. It may be two persons half-time once the, especially in new construction, the steel set in Nick's, Nick's areas of expertise, you know, specifically the ESCO projects and ESPC projects where you have a narrow scope, but it may 
incorporate 5, 10, 15, 20 buildings on a campus, it still may require one or more persons full-time during the actual installation phase, depending on the scope. So there needs to be enough engagement so that there, and part of it depends on how well the requirements are communicated, the OPR and the uh, design is communicated to the contractors or the design build contractor and how well they are managing their internal, their internal and, and, field installers and early on you can get a pretty good sense of how well they are abiding by the rules basically the OPR and the design and then govern yourself accordingly so it's that that brings to bear you know another question we get the questions all the time how many dollars a square foot to commission well first let's talk about the semantics and definition of commissioning because it means different things to different people as we already talked about but then again when we talk about commissioning do you plan to go through a full commissioning process including development of the OPR including development of you know the basis of design and construction phase commissioning so a lot of folks don't want to pay for commissioning engagement during the construction process and then we talked about this before too, the, the trust issue between owner and commissioning agent. When you get on the job site, all of a sudden the commissioning agent's the bad guy because the OPR hasn't been followed, the design hasn't been followed, and there's significant rework required to meet the intent and meet the design. Yeah, the time spent early on, that's, that's a tough one, Clayton. I mean, I can understand a lot of owners would well, maybe be interested in that, but it, it, it is totally dependent on not only the scope and that complexity, but the scale too. Right. And like Mark said, if you're doing, you know, I've been on projects where they're pretty much doing the same thing, but in a hundred buildings and, you know, it takes a while to do that. But again, early on, you'd want to be involved quite frequently, you know, to make sure that things are being put in and everything's there that you need. Cause when you get down to the last buildings, a lot of the times, you know, a lot of the other activities are being phased out on site. Mm-hmm. It's very tough to get people back re-engaged as far as time and money and commitment. And I can imagine it's not, I mean, it can be a, I don't want to say an easy process, but if you start from the beginning and you, like we've talked about, lay that proper foundation when you have the OPR, you could really guide the project on the right path the whole time. And it can, it could be probably pretty painless if, especially, you know, if you're there right in the beginning, making sure everything is done properly. Once you get towards the end, you can say, yep, we did it. Everything's good. And, you know, move on to the next one or what have you. And then another question I just thought of as we were discussing this, I know we geared this conversation regarding on-site during construction, particularly for new construction. You know, we're talking about putting steel up and drainage and so on and so forth. What about uh, when there's a retrofit project? Obviously that happens more often than not in facilities. And there's a lot of demo work going on before we start construction, right? Or maybe that is considered during construction. Is that something a commissioning agent would want to be on site for as well to make sure what they're taking out is correct? Maybe not taking out more than they need to or less than they need to? I have an opinion on that, but it, it goes back to the design. 
as we've talked about in other podcasts, depending on the retrofit project and the quality of the engineering package that goes out to bid or goes through procurement or goes through owner acceptance, typically, and and I hate to be biased, but it's almost necessary, when you go through the traditional A&E process, there is a mindset of tear it out, replace it with new, and it's much faster, much cheaper, which is not always the intent. A very good retrofit is much like surgery. It You remove only what you need to keep absolutely all the essential working elements in place and connect to those and make them work more efficiently. So as long as you have a very good uh, design package together, which clearly illustrates and defines the boundaries of work and points of connection, it is important that the commissioning agent be involved to assure that anything that is necessary is not being removed and what is unnecessary is being removed. Because if not, you get to the point where what happened to you know, this box that was supposed to be here, uh, oh, we threw that out. That's, you know, that's not a good day. But at the same time, that is atypical for many retrofit design packages. A lot of retrofits are, you know, remove this air handler, put in a new air handler versus uh, replace the dampers and put on a speed drive. Okay. So it, it just varies. Makes sense. So moving forward, obviously in the construction phase, the commissioning agents on site, we're making sure everything is is going smoothly. You know, what's supposed to be installed is being installed per the design, per the approved submittals and so on. At some point, they're going to have to, I don't want to say start commissioning because they've been doing the commissioning process for the entirety of the project already. But some of the things that I consider, you know, the commissioning per se is, your construction checklist, right? We're going to get to a point where we need to a complete these, which I think at this point they are already completed by the commissioning agent or, you know, generated. So now we need to hand these out, give them to the contractors and make sure what is installed is operating properly. What, what do those generally look like? And when, when do you do that? When do you say, okay, now it's time to give you your construction checklists? Do you break it down? You know, if there's, we'll say 10 air handlers, five air handlers, and they're, they're putting in, you know, maybe it's a new air handler, maybe it's a retrofit. Do you do that? You know, each time a major piece of mechanical equipment is completed and installed and your sensors and actuators are in, or do you wait closer to the end of the project for those? Well, I think sometimes it depends. Well, first and foremost, I think the sooner you get information in the people's hands about what's expected, you know, the better off everybody is. And I would say that, again, depending on the firms involved in their experience, but uh, a lot of times, you know, they will share construction checklists. They have their pre-functional tests. And then if there's any gaps that need to be filled in or something else that is needed per the commissioning authority, then the, the forms would either be revised or new ones provided. And, but I mean, the key part is everybody's on board with, you know, what is expected 
and the, the the wrong time to be making those choices and changes, I guess, is right out in the field when they're doing it. I, I would agree with that. And I think the earlier you can communicate the what will be required on the construction checklist, the better off you are. That can just be as simple as, okay, we need to see the all the startup documentation, but more specifically, if there are overarching issues that that reside in the OPR, those need to be roped into the checklist so that, yeah, we can confirm the building envelope, the electrical systems, mechanical systems, meet the OPR, and you, uh, you know, append the checklist to incorporate items that may not have been well communicated or amplify the, the items that need to be specifically reviewed during the construction process. And, and from a measurement and verification perspective, you know, I guess at this point, when you're entering construction and laying out these documents, you know, that team is also keeping an eye on what the end goal is. So there's plenty of times where we've wanted things in the pre the construction checklist that we knew were going to give us a heightened sense that, you know, this thing is going to work like we intended to and that the documentation will be there so that when we get into looking at trends and, and data coming from the field when it's in operation, there's not a question of, well, well, what was this thing doing when we set it up originally? And if the commissioning documentation is is thin or doesn't have exactly those types of performance-related activities, then, then you know, we need to go back and dig through things a little bit. And again, then, you, then you're into that rework cycle and more time and money. Nick, that's a very good point. And especially on the ESPC side, just from my perspective, it's been not common from my perspective for the commissioning authority to be engaged extensively with the M&B team or the M&B person of responsibility for, from the, for the ESCO on a regular basis. In fact, in my recollection, it's only happened two times where I even met the measurement and verification expert slash package, you know, the, the group that was doing M&B during the construction process. And it wasn't really even until you know, we're at the functional test point where we met the M&B team. Is, is it common from your experience to be engaged with commissioning during the construction and final startup? No, not common. I would agree, but doesn't mean it should not be done. And I think there's enough examples of projects where you do have that involvement. And again, it's not as intensive as the commissioning authority, but a lot of times those two entities can work together and uh, make it so there's not that one, well, primarily that the performance is achieved what we thought it would be, but two, that there's not an overlap or redundancy in activities that are occurring at the site, which if the M&V team is not communicating with the commissioning authority, well, then a lot of times you do have a duplication of effort but it's not something that happens common, but something that's recognized as it should be happening more frequently, which I think is a good start. Yeah, that's good. And it, it does. It seems 
pretty, I don't know, obvious now that, you know, as we talk about this process, that that transition can be very smooth as opposed to a hard stop on commissioning. And then you kind of, you know, got to go from zero to a hundred real quick on the M and B part and do a whole lot of rework that is already, that was already done kind of in the commissioning portion. So it does seem like it'd be a very smooth transition if there's involvement between the two entities earlier on. Well, that's a great word for it, Clayton, is the transition and, and the continuity. And, you know, it's the same thing we, when we pretty much think of this, when we, we don't think of uh, the sale of a project and it necessarily ending there and then construction comes in, you know, and that, that part of it's been pretty well demonstrated that you need that continuity to make a success, to deliver a successful project. But delivering it is more than just getting on site and starting to build it. And a lot of times the success of a project may not be known for, you know, two years down the road when they've gone through all types of, you know, the external factors and influences that they couldn't plan for, but they designed for, and then they're seeing them come to fruition. So a lot of times, you know, a project cannot really be called necessarily a success until the documentation is in and the reporting's been done on what it actually uh, was doing out there. But again, that doesn't go for all projects. Right. But some of them, like, like we've talked about is they, you need a certain payback and energy avoidance and (laughs) just by building it and turning it on doesn't mean you're going to get that. So exactly. That's, you can't say, yep, the light turned on, we're done. It's got to operate properly and now that is a part of it though. And that's yeah. what, what we're talking about now in the construction checklist, yep. you know, the, the switch activating the equipment, you know, is, you know, a primary step. Yep. So bringing it back to the construction checklist quick, just for the listeners trying to help paint everybody a picture if they're not fully aware or maybe give somebody a new perspective, but is the commissioning agent, the one going through that construction checklist and ch- checking this off saying, yep, that's good. That's good. That's good. Or do you hand these out to the, contractors or the you know the bms contractor whatever contractor and do you let them do it do you take their word for it before commit before functional testing uh, i'll i'll draw you an analogy here this is very much like raising kids so when you start them off in first grade and say okay we'll work on your homework together we'll you know do this together and get them acclimated to the thought process that your homework has to be done by third grade or fourth grade, you can say, okay, did you do your homework? And they say, yes, we did. Okay. Well, I'd like to check it and let's work through the problems one by one to make sure that a, the math is right. And B you did the homework. So mm-hmm. by sixth grade or seventh grade that you don't have to check their homework every night because they know a spot check may happen at any given time. And if they didn't do it, well, that's a bad day. So I think it's important for the commissioning agent to set the stage by very clearly, you know, the first few construction checklists, let's go through it together so we understand what is expected. And then by the time we're really in the, uh, you know, full scope of the project and things are happening fast, you can get construction checklists that are authentic and credible versus someone that just sat at a desk with a donut and 
checked a, a number of boxes and said, yeah, we're done. Yeah, I agree, Mark. And there's been plenty of times when I have been on the receiving end of uh, documentation and said, oh, this doesn't include what I what I wanted. And, you know, maybe early on I was more projecting that onto the person that gave me the information. But, you know, I've come to realize, well, I did not set the expectation. So they gave me what they would normally do. And it's professional and it has a lot of good things. But it's only it was my fault that I didn't set that expectation and communicate. And one of my first bosses told me he was pretty tight when, you know, with my comings and goings. But he said to me, it's a lot easier to be, you know, tighten down on you than loosen up than to go the other way. And that's the same thing when you get a bunch of documentation and then you have to go back and say, well, what we really needed was this. You know, that, that creates some friction right there and can uh, really hamper a project. I agree. And, and I, I've, done, I've made the same mistake and you, you get the pushback and it's valid pushback. Well, nobody told me. You're right. My failing. Nobody communicated the expectations. So, you know, Clayton, to your question, communicate your expectations, be very clear, and then you should be good going forward makes sense to me and i i completely agree seems like that's what we've done you know for the projects we've been on or that i've been involved in as well so it follows through perfectly so moving on to functional testing now obviously we've we've discussed pretty much the the commissioning agents involvement and requirements all the way up to this point now and now we're here the judgment day, if you want to call it that, or days, depending on the size of projects, right? Where the commissioning agent, we, we functional, functionally test this equipment. Let's make sure it's installed per the spec. It does everything it needs to do, operates properly from start to finish so that, you know, from starting it up to shutting it down and everything in between. This is a process I think we've discussed in our previous episodes that occurs at the end of the project, right? You want to wait until pretty much everything is systematically completed to test the system. And who is part of this process? The commissioning agent or agents? Generally, I think I've seen an electrician on site, controls engineer. Anybody else that you would you would want to have during a functional testing process? Uh, some owners like to have their own representative there. Okay. Uh, in yep. addition to the commissioning agent, oftentimes the mechanical contractor needs to be there depending on whether the, um, you know, depending on what we're commissioning in general, we're talking about mechanical systems here and there may be a requirement for an air or water balancer to be there as well, depending on, again, what we're, what we're actually doing functional testing for. Yeah, and you know that's a good point to add. Obviously, uh, up to this point, balancing has already been completed. So, just to to add that as a note to our listeners. So, I have my own commissioning tool bag, right? And it's got a quite a quite a bit of, I think, extremely valuable tools. If it's a magnahelic, different sensitivity ones, some pneumatic fittings, obviously your your basic hand tools, a multimeter with a clamp your standard leads trying to think anything else of the big stuff. Oh, there's just so much yeah, stuff. Can, there's, there's the FLIR is in there. The FLIR. The, yep. Um, 
you know, a variety of tools and, and I'm, I will, I'll diverge a little bit and Nick, I would like to hear your thoughts on this too. We, the commissioning team have a full bags of 100% NIST calibrated, you know, measuring devices from multimeters to temperature sensors, uh, thermistors, multi-point temperature sensors, you know, a, a FLIR infrared thermography device, all of our differential pressure devices, airflow transmitters, relative humidity sensors, all 100% uh, within their one-year calibration period that we bring to the projects because we typically find the contractors don't have them. And, you know, a lot of commissioning specs put the burden of functional testing and providing devices on the contractors. And, you know, their eyes pop out of their heads when they see the tools that we bring to the project. So, you know, that's, that's what we typically do. What do you usually see, Nick, in terms of the commissioning team bringing their own tools for functional testing or measurement on a project? Well, I would say there are at least from what I've seen, and sometimes I see, you know, after the fact, but it's been, they've been quite well equipped and inverse with the equipment and the test tools that they need to bring. Now, with that said, again, this isn't a, we got done with pre-functional testing. Let's start writing the functional testing plans and uh, describe the the test uh, instrumentation and calibration requirements. A lot of this is laid out well in advance in a commissioning plan. Right. So you know, you're hopefully going to kind of, I guess, tease out some of those limitations. If, if you're asking a contractor to do something that maybe they don't have a lot of experience with, which is, which is fair and fine. But the, the key point is, I think it would be very unsettling to show up at a job site, Mark, and have the whoever's doing the commissioning say they don't have that piece of equipment that's needed and somebody else needs to loan it to them. But I'll take your word for it that you see that a lot. And, you know, that's interesting though, but, you know, you need to be able to adapt and adjust to it. And it's not the, it's not a dead end. So Nick, I'll give you an analogy here. I mean, not even an analogy. This is an anecdotal story. The last project that Clayton and I were on, we were not the commissioning authority. And I will tell you that the commissioning agent showed up on site. He was probably on site for a total of four days. And I guarantee you, he'd had not one measuring tool with him at all, not even a screwdriver. Oh, yeah, nothing. There was no relative humidity sensing, no temperature sensing, no airflow sensing, nothing but a pad and a paper and a telephone. It's pretty old school. Well, and it. I hate to bash the guy or what have you, but he, he really didn't even come intending to do any functional testing. I mean, they kind of just walk through and, yep, that's there. That matches the drawings. Does it turn on? Is there a move? Yeah. Uh, specifically in the HVAC commissioning, we test everything does the freestat operate, whether the control system is in manual or automatic? Is the fire alarm interface operational? Does the system shut down correctly? Do the dampers close? Everything, soup to nuts. And none of that happened. We went ahead and tested it anyway just because we were the owner's rep and could not leave the building without knowing that those interfaces worked and the safety devices worked. But 
it was it was um, a little unsettling for me that that level of commissioning was not performed. Now, maybe this it's not off topic, but tangential, like how do you get to that point on a project, do you think, or do you know where you have that situation? Like where, where did things break down in the process to have a person show up with no tools? It broke down at the, at the onset where there was no commissioning spec. There was the, the commissioning was procured through the uh, same entity that did the design. And it was basically uh, lick them and stick them the stamp on the commissioning that, yep, everything works, which was unfortunate. Hmm. Mark, if I remember correctly, <laughs> was it post-commissioning that we identified that the fire alarm wouldn't have shut down the fans it was. and your handlers? Yeah, yeah, it was, it was post the shutdown because the fire alarm, instead of being wired in series with the fan starts, stop was wired in parallel so the start stop switch would always keep the fan running and the fire alarm didn't do anything and needed to be rewired yeah it's a pretty critical oversight exactly Hmm. so talking more about the functional testing process then what does that involve obviously when we go through we want to make sure as i said before from start to finish it, you know, you follow the sequence of operations in general. So you have your sequence that says the unit needs to be able to do this. You know, when does the economizer come on? You could do anything, pressurization, a, a whole bunch of different factors. And we go through, right, as a commissioning agents, and we manipulate the system to make it do what it needs to do and ensure that it does it properly. Correct? You know, if you want to expand on a little bit of... I, I do want to expand on a little bit. When we talk about manipulating the system, I mean, there are basically in a, in a control loop, there's a sensor input, and we expect a control response output. Right. So typical, I shouldn't say typical, but there are many, many very good commissioning firms out there, but we choose generally not to rely on software manipulation of control points to determine whether a control input generates the required uh, or specified control output, but instead we'll put on a potentiometer or a variable resistor in the place of one or more of the temperature sensors or RH sensors or RH transmitters to be able to generate a variance in the control input that should elicit a control response that is proportional to the control input change. So it really, that's an end-to-end control loop test versus uh, making a software set point change and expecting that control response. It it provides a a couple of checks all in one versus just doing a set point change. Yeah. I mean, you can, you ensure obviously that the control loops is looking at the correct point because you're the one going in on the AI and adjusting it, you know, per how it's supposed to be done. Yeah, it covers, it covers everything. And then to that, like you said, we can make the system, if you're looking at discharge air temperature on an air handler, we can make the system go into cooling, heating, you know, make sure that's where you identify if there's any wiring problems on the valves, make sure they actuate properly, they don't respond too quick, too slow. Uh, you know, you, you, we'll talk about control loops in another episode, but you, you essentially want it to run like, you know, you want a nice 
asymptotical approach. And once you hit that set point, it should stay there as your cruise control should be able to, right? Right. What do you think, Nick? I didn't really have anything to add to that little segment. I was just kind of taking it in. I was going to ask, you know, what percentage do you see when you're not the authority, you know, do that type of physical end-to-end testing? Because I, I would think that the software uh, piece of that would have been tested prior to that, which gives you some level of certainty, but you're, you're, you're absolutely right. And then if you're going to test the system or the loop, you need to test the whole circuit, so to speak. I, 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 in, in general, we don't see that many, I would say probably 15, 20% of most commissioning entities engage at that level of, of functional testing. And, and the other part that we are, you know, I am just, I guess, fanatical about is the stability of control loops. And, you know, we have some very specific thought processes as far as what we expect to see in terms of control loop stability in our specifications. The level of trending that we ask for is used to be considered extremely excessive, but now we ask for five-minute trends on control control variable, measured variable, controller output, and device position so that when you put those in a, in a composite trend, you can identify whether the control loop is A, stable, and B, whether the response time of the controlled device is within the boundaries that you would expect in terms of actuator performance. And those kinds of things, you know, especially control loop stability are the things that end up being the nagging ongoing problems if they're not vetted out during the functional test process. And, you know, a lot of times we see people cut and paste loop tuning parameters from different types of systems with the expectation that they'll work again. You know, when we go from a 5,000 CFM air handler to a 50,000 CFM air handler, those require in general, they require different tuning parameters because of the speed of response, the different flow rates, and all the other variables that impact the system dynamics. Yeah, I would say that last part is more common in your, in perhaps your larger companies, or at least I see that where they have the modules and they just kind of plug and play. And yeah, you're definitely not going to see that type of response you're talking about in 60-minute trends you know, which can be common, but, you know, within that 60 minutes is where a lot of the performance issues are either happening or you can see the seeds of trouble. Well, or in a, in a 60 minute trend, you may not see anything Yeah, because the root mean square of the space temperature stays the same. But in the meantime, the VAV box is going from, you know, heating to cooling to heating to cooling, but the space temperature is just fine. And that is the kiss of death, especially in an ESPC contract. Yeah, I could see uh, even just a few short years ago asking for five-minute trend data was a major requirement or a burden, but now that's nothing. One-minute trends. Yeah, we we talked about that in our other podcast, Building Management Systems, how you know the modern BMS is so capable. It's like you guys said, it's nothing to be able to trend all those points and to store all that data. Well, it's amazing kind of seeing the resistance too to that when in years past you'd make a request and 
you know, you might get an argument, well, why would you possibly want to see that granularity of data? And I think the real reason was because it was kind of difficult to get and store and communicate that information. But nowadays, there's hardly any resistance. You want a one-minute trend on these VFDs, you know, you'll get a one-minute trend. And right. be able to correlate that to actual functional testing if you designed it right, where you can kind of look between the two results and garner some insights. The only time you get pushback is when the kids don't want you to know that they didn't do their homework. Yeah. And to that point, I think we've, even with five minute trends, sometimes it's still difficult to find the root cause of a problem if it's, if it's very intermittent. You know, you might not even see that in the in your five minute trend. What's going on for a while? Totally agree. The the shorter time period between trending points, the better. Obviously. So, moving back to functional testing, how much is actually functional functionally tested? Like, to me, major all major mechanical equipment you need to go through and functionally test. You know, it'd be all your air handlers, all your chillers, boilers, a- anything like that, and then you kind of get into you know, if we have a hundred VAVs, you can't, I can imagine you're not going to go through and test every one of those VAVs to ensure it's operating properly. You're going to do a percentage. And in my experience, that's generally what 10% mark. Well, it is with, uh, in general, when we propose commissioning or we specify commissioning, or we talk about functional testing in a procurement document, we, uh, let the contractors know that the intent is to commission all major equipment, as you said, 100% functional testing, but the secondary equipment or, you know, like reheats and VAVs, et cetera, is 10%. But if we have any failures within that 10%, then the balance of the system will be 100% commissioned at the cost of the contractor. That's a good and point. That That has always raise their eyebrows and if you communicate the functional test requirements up front and say here's the bottom line and be advised that the uh, selection of the VAB boxes is random at the CA's discretion then that really sets the stage for them to either do it right or it will be a long and painful commissioning process and costly commissioning process if we have to do 100% commissioning of you know, every terminal unit, which it's happened, and there are actually owners that want 100% commissioning of terminal units regardless, but in general, by, by constructing procurement documents, effectively you can, you can forestall having to do that. It brings you back to your, your homework analogy, right? They're- they're scared. They want it's got to be done right because it's going to be completely random, and if they you can't take that risk, especially with the ramifications involved of 100%, you know, functional testing at the contractor's expense. So that's a bad day to be a a lazy controls contractor to have that issue come come up at the end. Well, and the theme of homework is great and preparation and all that and expectations because. The chances of if you run into that situation and the chances of trying to get the contractor to go back and do 100% testing you know, after the fact that that hasn't been discussed at that point or uh, formalized in any documentation is essentially zero. It's not going to happen. So setting that expectation 
I mean, and this goes for complicated systems. VAVs are a great example too, because you could look at them as a, a sampling type of approach, but you know, I would I would support an owner that had a very diverse building or group of buildings and they wanted to know that everyone was operating correctly because it's not the same as really a lighting fixture where you know, it might be in a very different building, but if you sample meter or measure the wattage on that fixture, no matter how many times it's being turned on and off during that day, you're going to get the same wattage. But uh, VAVs can operate very differently depending on the spaces they're serving and the equipment that's driving them and pushing air through them. But again, expectations, setting them early is a, a key part of this process. And I think it's worth noting, especially on some larger projects that we've been on, there's hundreds of VAVs. Those are those are going to become available on the control system, whatever, in groups of 10, 15, I don't know, four. And if there is an issue before functional testing, it's sometimes very obvious to see that from the control system looking at the BMS. So a lot of those problems can be mitigated before you get to functional testing. In general, I can imagine you're not going to say, okay, here's 250 VAVs on the system. And this is the first time we're looking at how they operate. You can mitigate a lot of those problems during the construction part by being involved during construction and looking at the BMS and seeing what these spaces are doing. Once they bring a VAV online, if the space is always hot, you know what's the issue? Sometimes it's that the the reheat valve is stuck open, right? Absolutely. So it helps mitigate. It's not just saying we're coming at the end and you better have everything right. We, we've we've seen the system and been involved through the entirety of the process. So you, you have a general feel, I can imagine, of how functional testing is going to go by the time you get to functional testing. I agree with that with, with the caveat that if you've been engaged during the construction process, but when you get called and say, hey, give us a price to commission the building, you know, it's uh, it's done. That is a whole different animal. Oh yeah, I agree completely. And and yeah, as I said, it's it's as you come into it being involved right from inception as you should have been as a commissioning agent, not right at the end to say, oh, can you check this? Everything's done. I mean, then you got probably a, a lot of other problems as well. Yeah, I don't know if this fits exactly, but there is a kind of an old saying about not only statisticians, but involving them and it's to ask a statistician to come in after an experiment is finished to ask him to conduct kind of a examination is kind of a post-mortem experiment and he can kind of tell you what the experiment died of and i think of that a lot of times too when there's no commissioning continuity through a project and then it's turned over and then i see this a lot on the on the measurement and verification side it's not so much reporting great performance, but it's kind of pinpointing down and saying, here's a number of reasons why this project failed and we can trace some of these things back to the beginning. And that's a, it's a very unpopular position to be in. Exactly right, Nick. I mean, the, all it is is an opportunity for failure. Someone in general, I mean, and hopefully when I pass and go to heaven, all projects will be done in perfect order by perfect contractors for perfect owners who never change their mind and contractors who always 
abide by the letter and intent of the spec and engineers who don't don't omit anything and everything will be hunky-dory but in our world right now when the owner calls you and hey the building's done and we need uh, commissioning authority to come in and you know commission the HVAC and the lighting and blah 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 inevitably someone will be disappointed and that's just all there is to it and it it'll either be the contractor that well that's the way we always do things or the owner who failed to write an OPR and communicate that to the contractor and it, now you're no longer just the commissioning agent but you have to be the the diplomat the arbitrator the everything that we have to somehow satisfy an owner which may or may not be possible get a contractor to do rework which may or may not be possible and do it all within a probably unrealistic time frame so yeah that it, it, it sets a very bad stage when the the ca is not involved in the construction process i think that's a great spot to wrap this episode up with guys i mean essentially uh, the commissioning agent presence for the entirety of the project just it, we can't emphasize enough how valuable that is and obviously having a commissioning agent with boots on the ground it just to me it helps yield more successful projects we probably can all agree on that so we'll wrap this episode up here we covered a lot hopefully as a listener you were able to to see the value of you know why the commissioning agent needs to be involved during these different processes talked a little bit about the commissioning process pre-functional testing or your, your construction checklist moved into functional testing and what to look for and why as a commissioning agent we we need to be involved during the construction phase thanks a lot guys for tuning in stay tuned our next episode will actually be eyes ears and boots on the ground have a great day.